You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important events of the day within the framework of key Real Vision themes. That's macro, liquidity, market structure, and crypto. We cover it all. Hi, I'm Nick Korea for Real Vision. It's Thursday, April 9th, 3.30 p.m. in North Arlington, New Jersey, where I'm reporting from. We have Ed Harrison and Roger Hurst standing by for their market analysis, but before we go to them, let's take a quick look at the latest news and data on the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Yesterday, there were 86,979 new cases globally, but global active case growth is trending down. Meanwhile, recoveries are trending up. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was released from the hospital, while Dr. Fauci, director of U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, stated today that U.S. fatalities will likely top out at 60,000, a quarter of the ominous figure projected by State Department immunologist Deborah Burks on March 31st. Now let's go to Real Vision's Ed Harrison and Roger Hurst for their analysis. Thanks for that, Nick. And uh, I'm here with uh, Roger Hurst, who's the managing editor in our UK bureau. Roger, good to talk to you. Good to see you, Ed. How's it going? Good. And, you know, before we came on, I noticed that you, you're all filled up there in the back. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps me for the long weekend happy. Yes. You know, we're, we're talking right now, actually, after the close of your markets, but before the close of our markets. And the big thing, you know, stocks are up now about uh, 2% in the U.S. Uh, I don't know where they're going to close, obviously. But the big thing now, b- based upon where we are, is about the Fed and the Fed uh, making some, some serious moves. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on the moves that the Fed's doing? Well, they keep firing, don't they? I mean, they're on all cylinders. And we said before, the impressive thing about the Fed is the speed and the magnitude of what they've done. Um, But for me, the key is going to be, and as I've said before, it's not just the size of the bazooka, but it's the aim and the accuracy. And that's still very much um, a question which I think is is up for grabs. I mean, we've seen some phenomenal moves. And as of now, you know, obviously a huge move in the in the high yield space, the HYG and the JNK, 6% move as, as we're talking. And the LQD, which is the investment grade, is now up on the year. So on that front, it's great, but that's not the real economy. That's some financial assets. So the big issue for me is still the real economy. And, you know, I look at it in terms, I made a call earlier about liquidity versus solvency. And basically the point that I was trying to make is, is that the Fed, what they're essentially trying to do is solve liquidity problems. And that there's an artificial delineation that they've created between junk and investment grade. That's as far as we're willing to go. Now, there are two ways to think about what the Fed just did from that perspective. You could say either that was a completely wrong thesis and the Fed is now moving down the slippery slope into junk, or you could say that the Fed actually is much more delineated in that they are now backing the likes of fallen angels like Ford. Uh, You know, right before this, you had talked to me about, you know, they backdated their actions to be able to buy these ETFs to when 
Ford became a, a junk-rated company. And I tend to take the view that what they are trying to do is essentially say, we are still drawing a line in the sand. Whether they continue to do so or not, we'll see. But we're drawing a line in the sand between high yield and investment grade. And that means that if you were investment grade when all of this happened, then we will still consider you investment grade going forward. Even if you're downgraded into junk, we are actually going to give you a liquidity backstop because that's our function to provide liquidity. And what that means for me to a certain degree is that there is a bifurcation and the bifurcation is not between the single A, double A's and the triple B's, uh, but rather it's all of investment grade versus junk. And uh, that means that BND, LQD uh, versus the likes of HYG and JNK in terms of ETS, that there's a bifurcation there. Uh, you may have seen a rally of 4% on LQD, which is the investment grade fund, versus 6% on, on junk and, uh, and, and HYG. But I think that that's going to come unwound as the real economy starts to come into play and these junk companies start to default. Uh, you will see a, a move where they move in opposite directions. Well, it's, it goes to this whole, you know, they're socializing the investment portfolios of the wealthy. And is that the right thing to do? And I've seen some people say that only 10 cents is every dollar is getting into the real economy. And that's what really matters here is that, you know, what we're looking at is the initial reaction from the market from the initial um, initiation, should I say, initial initiation doesn't sound right, but the initiation by the Fed of new policies. Now, announcing them to the world and actually working them through into the system, which is what we really want, and it's more the fiscal side into the real economy. I think those two are very, very, very different things. And the time lag is going to be key here because announcing even on the fiscal side, you know, totals of six, eight, ten trillion dollars, there's a massive difference between announcing ten trillion dollars and probably less than half of that in reality getting into the real economy. And how much of that is not even going to get into the real economy? It's just going to go into the financial economy and therefore be of no benefit apart from to the few. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were talking about exactly this with regard to how, what it means for financial assets, because I saw a video of Raul and Mike Green talking about this. You know, if you think about it, uh, the there there's a boost to financial assets. How much of a boost? We're saying it's dependent upon the real economy. Mike Green, in this conversation with Rao, was saying that it's a market structure issue. That is, is, is that what we're seeing is, or what we did see, is a completely market structure-based uh, fall. And now that that's been solved, we're going to see a resumption back up to the high. Not a retracement to the 38 or 50 or 62 percent level and then a retest, but all the way back up to 100 percent. What's your view on that? It's, it kind of goes to, I think, the question I posed last night, and I think I post every time we've come on, which is, can the response of the central banks be greater than the crisis itself? And I've argued the reasons why um, I think the time lag issue is more important than the actual size of one versus size of the other. But what I think is really interesting about, I mean, Mike's um, view is, was really interesting because we can actually look back over the last four major corrections that we've seen going back to 2015, two of which were market structure events and two of which were economic events. And we can see this through the vol of vol, so volatility of volatility, VVIX. In 2015, August, we had a mini deval from China and risk parity blew up and we had a, I think it was like something like a 10%, 11% decline in four days. 
And it was a vol of vol, massive spike in vol of vol. At the end of 2015, coming into 2016, we had the end of the dollar crisis, as it were, the end of the earnings recession. And we saw markets fall by about the same amount. The vol volatility went up, but vol of vol was very well behaved. It hardly spiked. 2018, Volmageddon, vol of vol spiked incredibly aggressively. And the market And then at the end of 2018, we had an economic event. There were some other market structural issues, but it was mainly an economic event. And vol of vol, again, didn't move particularly hard. This time around, we've got both an economic event and a market structure event. And it was the economic event that preceded because we saw vol of vol moving up to a lesser extent than the VIX. So VIX really went up very hard. Vol of vol didn't. And I said that this is basically the first move down, the first 15% was basically the economic shock. And then we had that deleveraging period, which was the market structure shock, risk parity coming off. We saw bonds selling off even as equities sold off. It was the unwind, it was the deleveraging. And vol of vol got to those same extremes once more. Now, where, what, um, what Mike was then saying is that the structure is still in place because things like pension flows are still strong because the people who have the pensions are still in, in jobs working from home. And that is sort of correct. But at the same time, he said, but I'm watching this because obviously one part, which is the share buybacks, has halved and therefore the pension flows become crucial. Now, the best will in the world, I can't believe that pension flows going forward are going to be the same as they were pre-crisis. But the reality of this is, yeah, probably financial market participants are still operating at full capacity from home. But the rest of the economy, you think about the, the wealthy who gain the pensions, they're wealthy because of the mass adoption of their goods and services. Well, that mass adoption has collapsed because those guys can no longer afford to buy anything. These are the 50, 60, 70% of the real economy. So that has to be going to feed through over the next couple of months, which therefore means that flows into pensions, I think, with a lag, will start to decline. And even if you think about something like Google, now Google, I think I saw a number, which is something like the average employee there earns 240,000 pounds or dollars. Google is basically reliant on advertising. Is advertising revenue going to go up or down from here? Therefore, a Google employee is going to earn more or less going forward, or are there going to be fewer of them? And therefore, that probably means that pension flows will, will fall. So yes, the elements of the market who have pensions and pay into pensions are slightly more protected, much more protected than the, the sort of gig economy, which is being screwed at the moment. But nonetheless, I can't imagine that pension flows are going to be anything but lower going forward. And we know that those, um, those flows from the buybacks is lower. And one other element, which is when those pension flows came in and allocated to min-vol risk parity type funds, they often used realized volatility as their trigger for allocating to equity or otherwise. And it's a very simplistic, and this is super simplistic, but let's say you have three-month realized volatility at 20, above 20, you are allocating your equity at the lowest possible level, uh, below 12, you're at the greatest level. Well, currently, three-month vol realized on the S&P is over 50. Even 10 days still over 50. So they're allocating at the lowest level. So if those flows are lower, and they're going into equity at a slower pace. So I think that that support from the market has disappeared. And that's why I'm, I worry that the economic shock caused a market structure shock, which is causing a knock-on economic shock, which I think is an unknown still. But that's going to diminish the support that we were used to prior, prior to this COVID situation.
Yeah, very interesting, I have to say. I, there are a number of different threads I want to uh, go into on that, because I think on the one level, you can say that uh, we already know how pandemics uh, play out uh, over time. That is, in terms of uh, studies that have been done, there's one study that I looked at very recently. I think it was in the comments, and Mike uh, Green had actually uh, talked about this. Uh, the study showed that you had higher incomes post-pandemic because uh, labor was was scarcer but also more importantly there was a impact on savings rates that was uh, hysteresis uh, over time that said that it, it lasted even after the pandemic was gone people's behaviors changed and so legitimately you should expect therefore that these uh, these 401ks, they should actually have less. People will, will allocate less. They'll put more into savings uh, because they're afraid of what will happen in the future because they've seen their relatives, their friends, their neighbors lose their jobs. And that is how things work out over not just two months, but over a very long period of time. There was another thing that you said that I thought was very interesting when you talked about, in particular, about uh, the 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 volatility level uh, the realized versus implied volatility and how they looked at realized volatility and that maybe there was a sell signal on either side now the way that I'm thinking about this and I'm I'm playing with the idea is what I would call the uh, the mechanization of human heuristics in markets and by that what I mean is 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 that when you look at algos, what they're really doing is that they're taking what happened in the past and they're extrapolating that forward into a framework that you can automate. Now, if you're automating something that happened in the past, you're automating scenarios that involve real live human beings who uh, are prone to heuristics like uh, they're, uh, they're risk averse, uh, that they uh, there's hurting, and there are all sorts of things like uh, loss aversion. And so my belief is that when the real economy kicks into play, what you're going to see is, is these algos doing exactly what you said. Uh, they're going to be replicating in a mechanized way all of these activities that were happening in the past in a human way. Heuristics will be taking over, but in a mechanized, very rapid way. So one of the reasons that we saw a rapid uptick and then, uh, you know, downtick and then a, a, a snapback is because it was algos that were doing this in, in place of human beings. I think to the degree that passive is still very very much in play, it may well be that we see another sharp decline in a very uh, massive way, and the trigger for that will be the real economy. So I'm still thinking about that, but that's kind of where I am in terms of the th that particular uh, idea. I mean, I think it's the biggest um, kind of debate story we need to get our heads around. And if anyone hasn't seen the Mike Green Rail interview, they should, because I think Matt, Mike's points are, are fantastic. And what, what he's sort of also saying is that, you know, the size of the response can be unlimited, and theoretically it can. And what they need to do is suppress volatility, which they can do potentially by bidding up all these assets, which is effectively what they've done on that, so that you bring the mechanism back into its, its equilibrium, as it were, and therefore we kick back in. And and I think that's, that's the unknown, which is 
you know, can these central banks be bigger? But it's also why I said yesterday why I'm happy to wait out until I see a new all-time high in the equity market, which is obviously a significant um, way above where we are. Because if we do, then Mike's absolutely right. And then in that sort of Dr. Strangelove sort of way, I'll, I'll come to stop worrying and come to love the Fed. <laughs> I might not agree with the Fed, but if the Fed have manufactured equity markets and risk assets to break above their highs, um, I'm going to play that game. I'm going to get involved. And I'm not going to sit there going, I hate them. I disagree with it. I'm going to play with it. Now, I don't know. My, my gut feeling is that um, that's, the, the assumption from Mike is probably correct, apart from I think that the long-term damage to the economy and the way that such large swathes of the economy that at the lower end, but ultimately feed into the top end, that ultimately feed into the framework that used to cause markets to rally, I think because that's broken, and because the buybacks are broken, I think it's a very long, it's a longer journey back. But I will quite happily get back involved when we break the all-time highs. The one other thing I would say about this rally as well is that um, the volumes on the rally have been pretty atrocious. Mm -hmm. So we saw big volumes going in, which you'd expect, and the rally out volumes have been appalling. And in fact, on Tuesday, when the S&P had that day when it went up a little bit to the highs, or what were the highs then, and then retraced 3%, it was a very, very low volume day until it sold off and the volumes picked up on the downswing. So the participation in this is a mechanical rather than a, a full on, you know, we're, we're embracing it. And that's another reason why here we are, we've got to 50% retracement. Nearly all these big sell-offs get to 62. If we get to 62, I'll start thinking about being, maybe shorting it or taking off some more equity, but I'll have tight stops. And then if I'm wrong at 62, I'll wait to the all-time highs and I'll drink, have a drink to Mike Green. <laughs> you know, his analysis would have been correct. Right. Well, you know, uh, let me let me uh, give you my view here on that. And that is, is I'm looking at it from a credit guy's perspective, and I'm looking at the credit structure. You have senior, you have subordinated, uh, uh, you have equity, and equity and potentially and especially junk are lower down. They're more residual assets. How is it possible that you can get a, a rally to an all-time high that is uh, lasting if the real economy is in the tank? So ultimately, I don't care how much the Fed is injecting into the economy. They have to either A, stop the rot in the real economy, or B, buy all assets. That is, you know, not just buy, you know, fallen angels, but move down further into the capital structure in order to support those assets. Until they do that, I'm in the, the camp that says it's not going to be enough, that the real economy is going to be the thing that, that, that holds over. Well, I think that you know, the, the, the thing I've been sort of grappling with is let's pretend, I'm going to use some pretend numbers here, but let's say $5 trillion of profits is wiped out in the global economy, and the Fed prints $15 trillion with a 50% hit rate, so they print 7.5, and they just go, well, we'll just give it to the companies, and we'll, we don't care about moral hazard. We're going to give it to the companies, and the fiscal authorities are going to give five trillion out, albeit slowly, to the rest of the economy. Then, do I care if I'm a corporate? And what I'm thinking of as an investor, whether the whether a corporate has five trillion of profits or seven and a half trillion of handouts, because what that's saying is that the here and now can be fixed, but the issues are being pushed on into the future. So again, it's a, it's an issue for future productivity, future growth. Um, two, three, four years down the road, with obviously the fear about inflation at that point being a sort of structural inflation rather than demographic deflation being the issue that we have to deal with. That's that's the bit that I'm I'm fighting because I don't know. I still think that 
the function from fiscal and monetary stimulus getting through to the real economy before the real economy collapses is slow. And look at 2009. 2009, they did the monetary stimulus that f sort of fixed the liquidity, stopped liquidity issues becoming solvency issues in 2008. But it was only when they made a rule change in 2009 and the market had gone considerably lower again that we finally reached the bottom. And I think that this could be that sort of elongated process um, where that slow death in the real economy. And I'm just assuming that we go, come out of lockdown, go back into lockdown. We you know, have some form of social distancing. My kids' schools are not going to go back this, this term, so they'll go back probably in September. That's the sort of time frame they're talking about. And that's massively damaging to cash flows. And that, for me, is, is the bit which the Fed actions today will not be quick enough to fix that in the next two or three months because of the just the size problem that they've got to deal with in getting the money out there. So, you know, the market that I think is the tell, uh, and you, you and I were talking about this earlier, not in terms of it's being the tell, uh, but the oil market, uh, that's an interesting place. Because when I say it's the tell, it's the market, you know, in terms of demand that tells you whether or not good things are happening. You know, over the short term, obviously, you can have a bump up for technical reasons. But if oil prices stay uh, low for a longer period of time, that's a clear indication that demand is low. What are you seeing in the oil markets right now, today, and what is your thinking about that market in general? Well, it'll be interesting to see how they finish today because we sort of had a confirmation of the 10 million barrel cut and markets were up seven, eight, nine percent, I think, at one point. And then when we got onto camera, uh, I think the WTI had dropped to one and a half percent into negative territory. Now, this thing is moving on a 140 vol recently, so who knows when it'll be in two or three minutes' time. But I think the issue, one of the issues we've got to have here is that um, OPEC has often had cuts and, and uh, compliance is an issue. I mean, there's going to be some countries which will be sitting there thinking, you know what, we're going to sneak out a few extra barrels here or there. So 10, 10 million of cuts is, again, 10 million of cuts is not 10 million of cuts. Is it really eight? Or is it five? In the same way that 10 trillion of, of liquidity injections is only five trillion in reality because there's slippage. So compliance will be a big issue. And if we stabilize, you know, the oil price stabilizes sub 30, well, it's still below the shock lows of 2014-15, although they came from a much higher level back then. But I think it's, it's, again, it goes back to how quickly are things going to come online? We're still only talking about a small part of the world's population that's so far going through the early to middle stages of lockdown. Most other places are behind Europe, behind, obviously, Asia um, and behind the US. And this is going to mean that recurring parts of the global supply chain will always be knocked out. And that, I just... I struggle to see how this can fix itself in the short term and how global growth can't remain subdued for a, an extended period of time. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, if we can wrap this all up, and as I'm wrapping, I'm thinking about the positive story that we're supposed to tell so that it doesn't wrap in a negative way. Uh, if I could wrap it up, and you tell me if I'm right, what, we're, what I'm thinking is, is, is that uh, we've had a shock. Some of that's market structural, some of it's real economy, but the real economy impact still, much of it lies ahead of us. And it's not necessarily been discounted by the market, given uh, what we know from historical precedent. Yeah, and that's right. I think it's, it's not been discounted, um, which is not really a kind of a, a positive note to end it on. But at the end of the day, I think the, the difference here is that 
And a lot of this is now going to be down to sentiment. And I think that we probably reached peak fear for the virus, maybe, which precedes peak mortality and infection by quite some time. And the second phase is something we can rationalize. Now, rationalizing something actually gives people comfort. We can rationalize a slowdown in the economy much easier than we can rationalize the fear of coronavirus. So even if the next phase is debilitating in terms of its economic damage, I think that the rationality that we can apply to it will allow us to feel we will start opening up. And I mentioned this yesterday. People will start fighting back. We'll start doing things and working their way around it once you rationalize it, because it's fear that paralyzes. But understanding an economic slowdown allows us to, to get back into working things out for the future. So that's my optimism that I had yesterday. It's still my optimism today. Good. Yeah, I think that's a good note to leave it on, that uh, people will figure a way out and uh, and eventually things will go back to normal. But uh, we'll just have to get through this particular period in time. Yeah. Roger, great to talk to you as usual. Good to see you as well. Have a good, uh, good extended weekend, I hope. You too. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.